Uh, any, any move from the country to the city was a, gig- was a gigantic step in the wrong direction. And um, even, even a third grader knows that. I, I, I wasn't sure about a lot of things in life, but I was sure that that wasn't a good thing. There were some perks um, when we got to Eden. We lived on McConnell Street. Right at the end of our street was the boys' club. I spent every day, literally every day after school at the boys' club, shooting pool and having spiritual experiences. And, and we, had, we had a great church, um, Fellowship Baptist Church out on Old 87. Calvin, Reverend Pastor Calvin Adams was my pastor. He was a godly man. He served there for 22 years. Uh, pastor Gene, he's there now. He's in, I think, his 26th year. Incredible. Talk to him today, as a matter of fact. And um, Miss Huff was my Sunday school teacher. Awesome lady. Loved her church. Loved the kids. Loved the book. When I arrived at the mature age of 11 years old, my mom got me a special gift for my 11th birthday. It was, it was this. It was actually this, this Bible. It was a King James Version, red letter edition Zip on the side, zip it up, undo it. Had colored pictures in it. Um, an, an awesome book. It embossed my name on it. Um, that's a picture of it there. I thought maybe you could see it better on the screen than here. Colored pictures. Had places for genealogy. And I would open this book and I would, I would read it and I would underline and highlight. And, and sometimes I would write down important truths but I was always a little hesitant, hesitant to write in this book because if you put anything down in this book, you know, this is a sacred book. And I wanted to make sure if I wrote anything, especially in ink, that, that it was right. Right there across the page from Matthew chapter 1, I wrote these words that you see on your screen. I wrote this one in ink. I knew this was right. Jesus died for all of our sins. I was 11 years old. I I must have been thinking that sin was dark because I I colored it in. I I apologize for the penmanship. That was, you know, that's the best 11-year-old could do. But I wrote that down. Mom gave me this Bible. She gave me this Bible primarily for four reasons. She wanted me to to know it in my head, to stow it in my heart, to grow it in my life, and to sow it in the world. That's why she gave me the book. She'd given me a lot of Bibles down through the years, and it was always fascinating, and and every day of my life, it's still fascinating, because this Bible is just full of of, of relevant, life-transforming truths and stories. And the Christmas story is one such story. I mean, I've I've read it all. I continue to read it. I haven't found one story that isn't true because I know it's all true. One important question that you should know. Last Wednesday night in middle school, we asked the middle school students this question, and they got it right, so I want to see if you know it. The nativity stories in the Gospels, that would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The nativity stories are found in what two Gospels? In Matthew and John, Mark and Luke, Mark and John. 
Matthew and Luke. You have five seconds, class. Which, which one do you think? Which one do you think? Oh, on your note-taking guide, go ahead and put a little mark by the one you think is right. If you get it right, you get a prize. No, you won't get a prize tonight. If you went upstairs tonight to the Christmas party that the middle schoolers are throwing, you might win a prize. Okay, your five seconds are up. The Gospels, what two Gospels have the Nativity story? Matthew and Luke. If you got it right, raise your hand. If the person beside you didn't get it right, say, you need to read your Bible. (laughs) See, you're nice. You're not saying that to them, although it's true. We all need to read our Bibles. Tonight, we open the Bible to that page right there. Matthew chapter 2. So many important moving parts and scenes that surround our Savior's birth. When you're an 11-year-old kid reading this, most of it makes sense, but, but there are some parts of it that are rather, rather bothersome, like that Herod fella. So, so here's, what, here's what my Bible says. This is what I read. It's in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I'm reading it in this, this Bible, this translation here. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is he this born king of the Jews? For we've seen his star in the east and are, are come to worship him. And when Herod the king had heard about these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he, he demanded of them where the Christ should be born. I know this is a story a little over 2,000 years old, but, but would you do something? Would, would you just bow your heads and would you ask God Almighty if he would tell you something that your life needs individually tonight out of this story? You mean from Herod? That dude was messed up. Yeah, from, from Herod. Because God put it in here for us, not just for antiquity, but for us. And, and so tonight, as we continue this journey at some of the characters in the Christmas story tonight, we're going to focus on this guy, this messed up king by the name of Herod. And amazingly, God's going to speak to all of us individually and maybe even collectively. But would you ask him, would you bow your heads? Would you ask God, God, would you speak to me through your story tonight, here in Matthew chapter two. You just, you just tell him, just pray, just tell him. Father, we trust that every time we open your book, you speak. We, we know you speak because these are your words and words speak. So Father, tonight in this story, we pray that that, that you would warm some things in our hearts and you would open some things in our minds and Lord, you would crack open our wills and we would leave here knowing what some of our next steps ought to be because we have met with you in the pages, in the sacred pages of this book. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When I read this at 11 years old, I wondered, why is it that Herod, that, that, that Herod was so troubled and all of Jerusalem was troubled because he was troubled 
And, and why was he so troubled because of baby Jesus? Because it says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem in the days of Herod the king. Herod the king. Herod, Herod the great. Throughout all of antiquity, you've always found these people in history that were known as, as the great. You know some of them, Cyrus the Great, Alexander the Great, he might be one of the most popular, Genghis Khan, remember him, Genghis Khan the Great, Frederick the Great, Catherine the Great, Charlemagne the Great, Ramses the Great, Herod the Great. I mean, there's, there's hundreds of them, the Great. Herod the Great, you find him in the pages of scriptures, the Roman Senate made him king, in 40 B.C., he died in 4 B.C., and Rome liked Herod. Liked him primarily for two reasons, because number one, he kept peace, and number two, he collected an awful lot of taxes for Rome. That was pretty much his job, to help Judea live with the fact that they were under Roman occupation and to stay cool about it. And the second thing was to take money from all those people. And he took a lot of money, and he used that money in monumental ways. He, he lived this lavish lifestyle. But what he's known for, one of the things he's known for was his extensive building. You, you've no doubt heard of, of Herod's temple. I, I can't even describe it to you. I'm going to try, but... But what I know about history and what I know about that place, it's, it's just hard, it's hard to describe. It was really beyond words. Herod's goal, his number one goal, the thing that, that drove him was to build the most amazing structure ever known to man. It's not an exaggeration. That's what he wanted to do. And he decided part of it for political reasons, part of it to placate the Jews, but there were other reasons too, but he decided what he was going to do was he was going to build a new Jewish temple. And so for years, he, he collected taxes. He broke people's packs. He, he stole people's lands and took the money from that land. And he stored up immense troves of wealth and, and construction materials until finally that day came that he began construction, rebuilding the temple. The year was 19. B.C. It was made of marble and gold. It was taller than a 15-story building. It was built on the exact location of Solomon's temple and later Nehemiah's constructed temple. It could literally hold, the, the temple could hold tens of thousands of pilgrims all at the same time. It was twice as large as any temple enclosure in Rome. There wasn't anything in Rome even close to what he did here in Jerusalem. A thousand priests, a thousand priests were trained as masons and they worked on the temple. Alongside of 10,000 other skilled workmen. They had 10,000 carts or, or wagons. And these numbers I'm not making up. Go back and look at history. There were, there were stones in the walls that, that weighed 500 tons. History says there was one stone in that complex that weighed over 600 tons. It was unbelievable. 
South Wall, for instance, the South Wall was 900 feet long, 150 feet high. Inside that wall was a stairwell, a staircase. The steps were over 200 feet wide. That was just the steps. Josephus, who was a historian, a Jewish historian, he wrote that on top of that 150-foot wall, Herod made a, a plaza, a, a walking plaza. It was made out of marble. It was covered in gold. Imagine stand atop a 100-foot wall on marble that's covered in gold, looking down on the people. Herod was known for expansive and expensive buildings. But that wasn't the main thing he was known for. He's mainly remembered for the fact that he was, he was so arrogant and he was a paranoid egomaniac that commonly oppressed people to get what he wanted. And if you wouldn't give him what he wanted, he'd send you to prison or just kill you. Or often he would imprison you and then he would kill you. And he particularly targeted people that he thought might be against him. That was kind of what he was famous for. If he thought you didn't like him, if he thought you might be plotting against something that he was going to do, if he even had the mindset that maybe you might want to do something that would hurt his kingship, you've had a bad day. I mean, you've had a, your whole family, your household, your land, everything. It didn't have to be true. He just had to get wind that it might be true. He would always send out his spies among the common folk to watch them as they gathered, to listen to them as they talked, to see if, if, if they heard anything that he might construe as treason. Even he himself, Herod, would dress up like a commoner, and sometimes he himself would, would disguise himself and mingle among the crowds in the evening to find out what they were saying about him. He's the guy that if he watched a football game today, he just knew that in the huddle, they were talking about him. That was just the kind of guy that he was. And he was so paranoid about losing his power that he murdered everyone that he thought might, might just have the opportunity to betray him. So his wife, Mary Amney, he murdered her. Her mother, he murdered her. Three of his sons murdered them. His brother-in-law, his uncle, all kinds of people, he murdered them. When Herod first took the throne as king, when, when, when the Roman Senate made him king back in 40 BC, the first act of leadership that he, that he enacted was he killed every one of the Jewish Sanhedrin. You're talking about the top Jewish religious leaders of the day, the Sanhedrin, those 70 men. He wiped them all out. The emperor, the Roman emperor Augustus said, and I quote, and I quote what Augustus said, it would be safer to be Herod's pig than it would be to be Herod's son. It was true. It was true. For Herod, no one was going to be king but him. He was going to see to it. He wanted all eyes on, on him. Josephus says that when Herod was dying, he knew everybody hated him. And so he gave the order that, that all the elite people in Jerusalem would be arrested. And on the day that he died, they were to execute those elite leaders in Jerusalem 
So somebody in Jerusalem would be weeping when he died. It was all about Herod. He literally was a paranoid egomaniac. As long as he was alive, he was the king. There wasn't any room for another king. There couldn't be any talk of another king. Any challenge to his throne was met with swift and deadly response. I repeat, now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we've seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. Now you know why Herod was troubled and why all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. The old axiom was true then like it is today. When mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And when Herod ain't happy, I mean when Herod wasn't happy, ain't nobody happy. And if he was troubled, everybody was troubled because they knew that bad stuff was coming. Their maniacal king was on another rant. True or false? Second question, class. The Bible says that the Magi came to baby Jesus in the stable there at the manger scene. True or false? You're right, it's, it's false. M Matthew 2, 1 says that, that after Jesus was born, and then the question is always, well, how much after Jesus was born? Slide down to verse 11. Slide down to verse 11. It says that, and going into the, what's that next word? Not the stable, not the manger, not the cave, not the place where Jesus was born. The, the shepherds came to the place where Jesus was born, whether it was a cave or whether it was a stable. The, the shepherds that the angels came to that night and said, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. The, the shepherds, when they heard that from the angels and the angels said other things, they, they came to where Mary had just given birth, but not the Magi. It says, Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Almost all the nativity scenes you see. And most of the Christmas plays that we grew up watching, they have the three wise men coming in to Bethlehem, to the manger, immediately after Jesus' birth. And people in the congregation go, oh, isn't that cute? It's so wonderful. Didn't happen that way. They didn't arrive in, at the manger, and the Bible doesn't say that there were three of them, and it, it wasn't some quiet, unnoticed party of out-of-towners that were skulking through the shadows. These were magi, the wise men didn't come to the manger. They, they came to a house. Whose house? We don't know. How old exactly was Jesus when they came? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But, but there was this elaborate, large, festive entourage of men who had traveled hundreds of miles, hundreds of miles. This was pageantry. It, we think that these men were actually royalty. So they would have been dressed in magnificence. And there would have been a whole entourage of them. And there would have been a colorful caravan of camels and, and servants and supplies to make the journey. When they showed up, it caused a racket 
in Jerusalem. They made some noise, and it was good noise. And, and they caught everybody's attention. They were a sight to behold. And when they got there, they were so excited to arrive in Jerusalem, the city of God, because a king had been born. And they knew it. They knew it. They'd read the prophecies. They, they heard the utterances. They, they'd watched the skies. They, they, they knew what history said. They knew what the prophets of old had said. And they, they start asking around loud and proud to the 40 or 50,000 inhabitants that were there in Jerusalem. Where's the king? Where's the king of the Jews? And the folks in Jerusalem were kind of in the southern part of Israel. So being a southerner, they just say, I don't know. I'm not sure that's the word, but, but I, I know what, I don't know. I know what that means. That's what they said. It, it's really quite sad. The, the magi, these, these wise men, they come to Jerusalem thinking that God's people are, they are pumped. They are ready. They, they, they are interested. I mean, the Magi think that these people in Jerusalem, you, you are the ones that have held the prophecies all these years. You are the ones that have cherished the hopes of Israel for all these centuries. You have looked for the long-awaited Messiah. They thought that these guys in Jerusalem would actually be excited that this great thing had happened, so they started asking around. Have you seen him? Have you seen the king? The one who's born king of the Jews. Do you know where he is? And they're rather perplexed because God's people aren't even aware. Not interested. Aren't looking. There's a mountain-sized lesson in there somewhere. But these wise men, these magi, they... Bible says that they, they ended up at the palace. They're standing before Herod the Great. And they start asking him, where's the one who was born king of the Jews? They had no idea, no, didn't even have, had no clue. They just stepped in it. They didn't know. They didn't just step in it. They smeared it. They, 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 and they didn't smell it. They, they didn't know. They, it didn't strike them as suspicious when Herod asked them to be Sure to let them know when they found the baby because he wanted to hurry on over and, and, and he wanted to worship the baby with his shiny dagger in hand. He left, he left that part out. Never occurred to those guys that, that his plan was to locate this baby and kill him. Recently read one guy and he said, and I quote, listen to this statement, see how it strikes you. Luckily for the holy child, after the three magi had followed their star to the manger and left him their presence, they were tipped off in a dream to avoid Herod like the plague on their way home. Nod your head like this if you see some things wrong with that, that, that quote that I just read. Luckily for the holy child. Luckily. There's no such thing as luck. Divine providence, yeah. Yeah. Look, three magi, where'd they get three? The Bible doesn't say three. Could have been 12, could have been eight, could have been seven, could have been four, could have been two. We know that it was three because in the Christmas programs, you know, there were three. They, they came in. And in some of the large churches, you know, they were riding camels. So, so that, that had, it had to have been three. And, it, and, and the guy said they followed their star to the manger. It wasn't their star. And it wasn't a manger. Where was Jesus? 
he's in a house. He's, he's, he's in a house. Most of the confusion that people wonder about is, uh, is answered by just, just reading the text. So let's do that. Look at verse 7 and following. It's just 17 verses, because here's what it says. This will clear up a lot of questions that people have about the Christmas story. Then Herod, verse 7, chapter 2, book of Matthew, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. By the way, a, a human plot cannot stop a divine plan. And the plans of, of man cannot alter the plans of God. You're going with God, right? And it says, and he meaning Joseph, verse 14, he rose, he took the child, his mother by night, departed to Egypt, remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they, her children, are no more. It's horrible. It's un unspeakable. It's un it was unbelievable. We know that Herod died in 4 BC. He said, I want you to kill every newborn male child two years all the way down to newborn. Every child two years old down to newborn. It's one of the reasons why when people say, well, exactly when was Jesus born? We think it was between 4 BC and 6 BC, because Herod died in 4 BC, so Jesus couldn't have been born sooner on our calendar from where we are than that. We don't know exactly when, what year that is. We don't know what month exactly. We don't know what day. Pretty sure it wasn't on December the 25th. That's just the day we celebrate it. No, it's not. We celebrate his birth every day. And the question really isn't, 
When was Jesus born? The question is, when was I born again? Because that's really what matters. It doesn't matter that I know all the dates and locations and all the names in the Christmas story. It matters that the reason for which the Christ child came to this earth and lived and died and rose again, that I accept him as my savior and that I too am born again, that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That's really what matters. You could know exactly when Jesus was born, but if you're not born again, please be born again. Somewhere between 4 B.C. and 6 B.C., we, we, we think, but Herod dies in 4 B.C. Verse 19, chapter, verse 19, chapter 2. When, when, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he, Jesus, would be called a Nazarene. Pretty fascinating story, isn't it? I'm fascinated by it now even more than I was when I was 11 years old. There were some things I didn't catch when I was 11 years old. One of the things that I didn't catch when I was 11 years old was this fact. It is so interesting that in the nativity story, you find all of humanity. Everybody's there. The rich, the poor, the, the seekers, the oblivious, the godly. The godless, the humble and the proud, heaven and hell, light and darkness, it's all here. And one of the things that Herod represents is that age-old struggle. As uncomfortable as all of us are to admit it, Herod represents so many of us today. I know he was a paranoid, maniac jerk, and you're not, you're not like that. What I mean is, um, at his core laid the same issue that so many of us struggle with. I'm going to be in charge of my life. However you say it. Herod fought tooth and nail to direct his life exactly like he wanted his life to go. He wanted to be in charge. He'd rather stay in the dark as long as he was in charge. As long as he was in charge. Oftentimes he would choose wrong over right. Didn't matter as long as he was in charge. Frank Sinatra decades ago sang his theme song, I Did It My Way. As a matter of fact, the anthem for the Herods of the world is that song, I Did It My Way. Fast forward to today. If it were possible for you to ask Herod today, how'd that work for you? What do you think he'd say? I did it, I did it my, my way. It didn't work then, and it really, it really doesn't work now. I figured this out. I mean, I would rather be at the back of the line in the light than in the front of the line in the dark. 
I'm just glad I'm in the line. Doesn't matter what position it is. Doesn't matter what the job is. Doesn't matter what the calling is. All of our callings is to love Jesus and follow Jesus and to serve him with all of our lives. And, and, and our problem so often is the fact that we go, God, I've got this idea of how I want to run my life. Would you like to hear it? Only time I've ever heard God burp was when I asked him that question. God, would you like to hear my plan that I've got for my life? No, he didn't do that. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to illustrate the fact, underscore the fact, underline and highlight the fact that he's really not interested in hearing my plan for my life. And I read the story and it's, it's not just Herod that's been threatened by, by the birth of the Christ child. We too have this problem of wanting to be in total charge of everything that we can control in our lives. Here's what I hear some people say. I wrote down just some of them. The list is like 200 long, so I just got about seven of them. Here's what, here's what I hear some people say. And I quote, I know what's right and wrong. I'll date who I want to date. We will raise our kids the way we see fit. I'll manage my life the way I want to manage it. I'll determine my own morality, thank you very much. I don't care what that book says. I will sit on the throne of my life, end quote. Mankind's first reaction to someone else sitting on the throne of their lives was rebellion and it resulted in ruin. I think I could learn from that horrible mistake and go, God, I, I don't, I don't want to go there. Because I know when I read the pages of this book, not just Matthew chapter 2, all throughout this book, Old and New Testament, I know that Jesus is not only Savior, I know that he's also Lord. And you know that too. We often say that and we pray that. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We do that. So let's just do this class. Let's pretend like we're in middle school tonight. On your, on your handouts that you received when you came in tonight, there's an acrostic. It is L-O-R-D. And well, here's what we want you to do. You're going to get a whole 30 seconds to do it. And in 30 seconds, here's what I want you to do. If, don't write anything yet. If we just started down that list and started writing words and phrases that described who our Lord is and what our Lord is like, what would be some of the words and phrases we would use? Like if we were on O, don't, don't, don't write anything yet. <laughs> Middle school, look at, look at me, look at me. Don't write anything yet. <laughs> Billy, straighten up, Billy. Y'all stop kissing over there. If you were doing O, if you were doing O, you know, you might write, Jesus, he's, he's omnipotent, he's all powerful. If, if you were writing something in R, he's... He's, he's the ruler, he's, he's my redeemer. If you were writing a D, he's, he's the deliverer. He's, but we're just, gonna do, we're just gonna do L. You're gonna have 30 seconds, class two, to write down as many words or phrases that to you describe who Jesus is, what Jesus is, or, or what he's like, or who he's like. So go ahead and start doing that. Go ahead. And if you didn't get the handout, just start writing them on a piece of paper or, or start writing them on the hand of the person that you're sitting next beside. But write down some words or phrases that describe 
him. Not Russ, but we've got 20 seconds left. <laughs> Words or phrases that describe what Jesus is like, that describe who he is, what he's done, what the Bible says about him. I know 30 seconds isn't up. Just keep writing. What are some of the L words or phrases you wrote down so far? He's, he's light. He's, he's, he's love. He's, he's, he's living. He's living. He's, he's life. Oh, he's liberty. He's, you like that word. He's liberty. He's liberty. Somebody says he's, he's a lion in the tribe of, of Judah. He's the love of God. He's the, he's the living hope. The Bible's filled with words that describe who he is. Somebody said, well, I know it's written down, but he's also Lord. And he's also leader. In my little small town of Siler City, Tommy Stackhouse was a few years older than I was. Not many years. Tommy Stackhouse loved this book. He loved students. He loved Jesus. And uh, at that time, I was, I was driving... You remember this car? It was my second car. My first car was a Ford Pinto. It was gold. You know, it was the one where if you hit it in the back, it'd blow up because the gas tank was behind the rear axle. You remember that? That was, that was a car. That was a car. I lost it. It got run over by a road grader, and, but that's a different story. But, but um, you know, my, my second car was a, you remember this car? A Hondamatic. Had two speeds, bad and worse. That was the two speeds. It was a tiny little car. You could sit, you could sit in the driver's seat and hang your arm out the window on the other side. It, it, uh, I used to say that that Honda broke down on every road in North Carolina. I know it, it was close to that. It didn't break down on every road in North Carolina, but most of those roads. And on the front of that car, I had this really cool license plate kind of matched the color of the car, which was, was rust. And, um, and, and, and the license plate was silver. And it, it had this emblazed, beautiful, blue, radiant picture of Jesus on it. And right beside of that beautiful picture of Jesus were these heretical words, God is my co-pilot. Tommy Stackhouse Smith you need to rip that license plate off the front of your car and you need to throw it away. <gasps> you may throw it away. I mean, I thought it was cool. I wanted people to know that when I, when I was going down the road that God was in the car with me, that I was one of those people that followed Jesus, that I, that I thought God was cool. I, you know, I, I could have had Budweiser on the front of it or some other stupid, but I, I, it was about God, so I thought that was cool. Tommy said, Mike, God ain't your co-pilot. He's not riding in the passenger seat. He's certainly not riding in the back seat. He's either driving it or he ain't in here. I thought about what Tommy said. Is he right? When got my screwdriver, took it off. It's a little sad that day because it looked so good. But it was such 
heresy. Because this one who is the king of the ages is also king of my life. He's not co-pilot anything. This, this one who is the Lord over all of creation is the Lord over my being. The one who sits on the throne of heaven is the one who sits on the throne of my heart. He's my savior. He's my Lord. He's, he's my master. He must increase. I must decrease. I don't add Jesus to my life like a pinch of salt in some favorite recipe. He's not a pinch of salt. He's the whole recipe. He's the whole table fair. It's his kingdom. It's his power. It's his glory forever and forever and forever. I'm the pinch of salt. He's the recipe. I'm weak. He's strong. I'm man. He's God. I'm small. He's mighty. I can't fix my own problems. He runs the universe. But when I give my problems to him, If, if you're going to put someone on the throne of your life, it ought to be someone who is worthy and capable to sit in that position. I know only of one. We're here to see the king. Where is the king? Who said this, church? All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Who said that? Or another translation, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We don't just bow down to that baby at the manger. We, 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 we bow down to that king every day that ends in Y because this king is king. Years ago, prince of a preacher, Dr. S.M. Lockridge, he preached a sermon. It was an hour long. An hour long. I thought we'd listen to the whole sermon tonight. And then I thought we better not do that. But, but I wanted to play just a three-minute, 16-second clip in that sermon where S.M. Lockridge, Dr. S.M. Lockridge is sharing his heart, is sharing the word, is sharing the Lord. This is what he had to say to the congregants that day who were fortunate enough to listen to that message Here's what he said. He entitled it, That's My King. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduring strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He 
is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him, for yet he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You see, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Terror couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Oh, look at somebody beside you and say, that's my king. Or you can't say it like Lockridge said it. That's my king. I like, I like, I like. There are three words, literally three words that hold my entire life together. This is not exaggeration. I've thought about this. I didn't just say this. There are three words that hold my life together. Before I tell you what they are, let me tell you what they are not. God is good. Just pray harder. Going to be okay. Is that three words or four words? Make more money. Work hard. Just work harder. God is love. The three words that hold my life together. Jesus is Lord. I don't know what it is for you, but that in my life has kept me from coming unglued. That's what's kept the nails from coming out, the mind from snapping, the heart. Jesus is Lord. It's one of the most beautiful sounds ever spoken from the lips of humanity. Let me hear you say it. Jesus is Lord. Say it again. Jesus is Lord. 
Look at somebody and say, Jesus is Lord. That is what holds my entire life together. And one glorious day in this future, not too distant from this day, I'm going to see, see his face. And until that day, I will say and I will sing and I will praise and I will live the truth that Jesus is Lord. And I hope that for all of us here and all of us who are listening, that somewhere in the story of Matthew chapter 2 in the Christ child that you hear those three words echoing in the soul and bouncing off the walls of your soul. That Jesus is Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we don't, we don't make you Lord. You're, you're already Lord. Jesus is Lord. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You, you were the first and the last word in all things. Your word tells us that you humbled yourself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, And therefore, God also has highly exalted you and given you a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You are Lord, and we bow our knees before you. We submit our lives Under your lordship, we gladly and confidently yield to you, our God. We see you incarnate in the manger. We see you resurrected in glory to the right hand of the Father, seated unshakable on the throne of heaven. Jesus is Lord, and it is in your name that we celebrate, and it is in your name that we walk forward. It is in your name that we pray, Jesus. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord.